You're listening to episode 180 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchbor, serve as the Director of Marketing here at the seminary. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I'm joined one last time by Dr. Alan Strange in this segment of Ancient Church History. Dr. Strange, how are you doing today? Jared, I am doing very well. I'm thankful to be on here with our listeners. Let me just say, I really do appreciate uh, all of our listeners. Uh, We pray for you all. We pray for God's blessing upon you and your lives and your ministries and all that the Lord has called you to do and how he has gifted you. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for your support of us here. It means really more than we can say, and uh, we'd be remiss not to mention it. And so I do want to mention it again. And I just I know many of you have even prayed personally. Some of you know that my wife has had health problems, uh, serious ones, and she's doing well now. And we're really grateful uh, for so many people. When I when I was talking to her recently, I said I'm 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 so thankful. And she said it's it's the prayers of the saints. That's what God uses. She said people have been praying for me all over the world, and I really think that's God is blesses that, and He does. So we pray for you. Keep praying for us. Yes. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Strange. Today, you're going to elaborate um, a little bit on the regular and uh, the secular clergy. What can you tell us about that in the context of the early church? Yeah, Jared, that's um, this isn't something that's just in the chronology, so to speak, that we've kind of been loosely following. But we speak of, and it may seem like a rather odd way of speaking to many of our listeners, if you've never heard this particular nomenclature or way of of titling something, to speak about the secular clergy. I thought clergy were in some way religious or something. How could they be secular? Secular is from the word secula, meaning in the world. So the Roman Catholic Church comes to call they don't really come to use this language until quite a bit later, but they come to call the clergy that you often think of as just the clergy, the parish priest, or maybe there's a monsignor there, and then there's an auxiliary bishop and a bishop and an archbishop all the way up to the bishop of Rome. In other words, the the sort of graded hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. That's referred to as the secular clergy because they are carrying out the mission of the church in the world, whereas the regular clergy, that interesting language, has to do with the clergy who live regula, that's the word, the Latin word, according to the rule, according to the rule. And so the Benedictine rules and other rules that that are for those and govern those who are in cloistered life, the life of the monastery. And so you could say the secular clergy are the regular parish priests and so forth, and the regular clergy are the monks and the nuns in the monastery. And um, in terms of the secular clergy, uh, we could talk about a little bit about the rise of the papacy. Now, that's something the papacy as an institution, which is to say the Bishop of Rome and his office and how it develops, is something much more appropriately spoken of in the medieval church in detail. But I just want to alert you to the fact that 
you can see the beginnings of it in the ancient church. It's not as early as many people, many historians of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, they say it starts with Peter, and it's this unending line from there. It's quite a bit more complicated than that. There are three scriptural considerations that Rome particularly has and bases uh, its claim to primacy and its claim to being successors of Peter on. Uh, And that's Matthew 16, you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. I think most of our listeners know that, 16, 18, and 19. Luke 22, 31 and 32, where Jesus said to Peter that Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's a second passage that's seen as uh, affirming or establishing Peter's primacy uh, in the church. And then John 21, where the fallen Peter, right? Peter does deny Jesus. He weeps bitterly and Jesus publicly restores him. And he says, do you love me? You know, three times. And he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And so many would say, well, here's the here's a biblical warrant for the primacy of Peter, we're going to see as we go along that those scriptures do not show that Peter has some particular warrant and that Rome, that those who are in the seat of the Bishop of Rome are actually his successors. Even if Peter does have a place of particular honor, the notion that the bishop of bishops of Rome are his successors is highly contested in any case. Um, but they also, Rome also claims that St. Peter's, Saints Peter and Paul founded the church in Rome, and Peter was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And you can talk about second and third century development in this a little bit. Victor, uh, the bishop of Rome, uh, around 190-200, rebuked the churches of Asia Minor for not following the date for Easter that the Roman church followed. That's called the so-called Quarto Decimon controversy. I'm sure you wanted to hear about that. Uh, uh, Stephan, in his controversy with Cyprian, that's in the mid-3rd century, uh, in around 250, explicitly for the first known time claimed to stand on what he called the Petrine deposit of faith. He's saying, I stand on Peter and his authority. And he claimed supremacy over the churches of North Africa. And uh, Cyprian earlier seemed to yield to that. And then in the second edition of his work on the church, he took issue with it, mainly because he had come to have disagreements with uh, Stephen. The 4th and 5th century sees developments. You heard me read from the Tome of Leo last time. And Leo the Great, 440 to 61, really exercises a lot of power. But there's, there's more that we could say. The early medieval papacy uh, begins with Gregory the Great. He was pope from 590 to 604. And some of you may know that Calvin actually uh, regards him as, as a good churchman. Uh, he's quite appreciative of of Gregory. So it is the case that whatever problems bishops of Rome may have had in the ancient church, they don't really start to have the kind of problems that become marked and call for reformation into the medieval church. So you have the regular and the secular clergy. You have the papacy here. Um, how does monasticism come to be in the early church? Yeah, monasticism is a is a fascinating question. Um, there's a lot of discussion about its origins. Some scholars think that monasticism was prompted by late Jewish communal and ascetic ideals, like the Essenes, the Essenes in the in the Dead Sea 
uh, cult? Are, are, are they, the Qumran community, are they uh, sort of early monastic? Some argue that. Others speculate even that, that Manichaean dualism or Gnosticism in its various forms, inspired extremes of asceticism within Christianity. So there were these extremes of asceticism would be extreme denial of the flesh. So starving yourself and beating yourself and you know all these sorts of extreme acts of self-denial. That, that there were pockets of that. Paul seems to address uh, potentially some of that. He seems to address in, say, his letters to the Corinthians, the possibilities on the one hand of of, a, of an ascetic stream or on the other of a libertarianism where you 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 figure well the body doesn't matter it, it, a lot of this could come from a kind of platonism in other words the body doesn't matter so you do one of two things with it either you beat it and you starve it and all that cuz it doesn't matter or because it doesn't matter you just live as you please as paul says eat drink and be merry he said that's the result if there's no resurrection and those platonists said there's no resurrection cuz you get rid of the body you don't want the body so paul had to deal with some of these things and this could have influenced others uh, point to, to gospel origins in Jesus and Paul uh, for this. It is the case, we should point this out to our listeners, Just uh, they'll know it immediately when I point it out, but it's easy to forget, that other religions have monastics. So whatever the impulse is, you can look at, at Eastern religions. You can think of Buddhist monks, right? You can think of, of the Dalai Lama, uh, who, when you think of Nepal and Tibet, and the religion there, this is all monasticism of a sort. It's a separated, cloistered life. In terms then of the earliest forms, uh, some think that the first nuns may have come out of widows of the later Roman period who decided not to remarry, these people who served diaconally. Obviously, there's a lot of debate about all that. The desert fathers, they lived as hermits in the deserts of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine, leaving the towns to engage in a solitary struggle against temptation. And so a, a lot of the earlier monastics were um, were, were what's called... Uh, Anchoritic monasticism or isolated monasticism is you sort of on your own. And that develops uh, into Kenobitic or common life monasticism, whence the cloister and all that emerges, where it's a community uh, that's living together. And among the um among those earlier ones, you have somebody who are rather curious. You have somebody like at the end of the fourth century, uh Simeon Stylites. Uh, Simeon Stylites was a so-called pillar dweller. He spent 37 years on a small platform atop a pillar near Aleppo, which is in modern Syria. And people would come to him and ask him questions. Some have, have, have posited that he did this to kind of get away, and he became such an object of attention that people were coming to ask him. And there's there's some debate about whether he was kind of grouchy about all these people <laughs> coming to see him. You know, I was like, I'm trying to be alone. Um, but uh, I'll say this, Jared. I think we could say that Christianity particularly developed what we could call a regular clerical order after the end of the faith being regarded as illicit. Because here's what happened. You, you, you've, you know, we can think of it in more current times as, say, a youth leader in a church getting the kids fired up because 
they're interested in being as as he's encouraged them to be radical Christians. Or you could just go back to what I grew up with or some of the dispensationalism, the language of what you get at at Moody or the old unshackled radio program. You become a Christian or like in the Billy Graham films and you go into full-time Christian service. In other words, if you're really a Christian, you're going to be sold out for Jesus in this way. You're going to be an evangelist or whatever the case may be. I think you've always had in Christianity the impulse of radical Christianity. You've always had those who want to be the most committed and sold out for Jesus. I'm just trying to put it in terms that our our listeners could really understand. And so you go back to this in the earliest church, and the people who sometimes were most expressive of this were the people under persecution and who took real strong and clear stands and were martyrs for the faith. But when those persecutions end with the conversion of Constantine in 312 and the issuance of the Edict of Milan in 313, and Christianity has goes from being illegal and under the sword to legal, and then it becomes later uh, the law, everybody has to be one, that dynamic is gone, that dynamic of persecution. And now Christianity is sort of an accepted thing. It's even a required thing. What do you take and what do you do with that dynamic? And I think a lot of that goes into monasticism and into the development of monasticism. And so you're, we're going to see that a lot more in the Middle Ages. But what you're going to really see in the Middle Ages, you're going to see, um, as we began this conversation, as you raised the question of, of tell us about the secular and the religious uh, clergy, our regular clergy, they sometimes call them the religious, those who are in the orders. What, what happens in both of those in the Middle Ages, just to look forward a little bit to the Middle Ages, is there's, there's such a misunderstanding about the Christian faith. The conviction comes to be in the church that your average Joe in the pew, right? So your average pew sitter is not really going to live out the Christian faith, not only in a radical way, he's not going to live it out, but he's not necessarily going to really live it out in a clearly recognizable way. And they would look at something like the Roman Catholic Church comes to look at something like, say, the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, well, who does that? The people in the monastery. And they're living it out for you. So think how it goes. Mass or the receiving of the sacrament of the Eucharist becomes really the clergy there administering it. And a lot of the congregation is excluded from it. This happens in the Middle Ages. Similarly, you have this conviction that the people that are most living out the Christian life are your monastics, or the secular clergy. So the secular clergy, excuse me, the regular clergy, the regular clergy, the monastics, come to be viewed kind of as first-class Christians. The uh, the secular clergy or the parish priests come to be the second-class Christians. And the regular Joe Pusitter becomes the third-class Christian. And you can see this is part of what goes into making the need for Reformation and for a better understanding of how we're saved. But so these, these views of clergy come to really, the clergy comes to be the church in the Middle Ages. It comes to be identified as the church. So you would identify the church by its priests, by its monks. And, you know, Joe Christian really gets shoved to the side and marginalized.
And that concludes our segment on early church history. We hope you've enjoyed diving into the world of Augustine and some of the early church councils and the formation of the early church. We're going to be taking a break over the rest of June to prepare for upcoming episodes, but don't worry, you can still tune in to our older podcasts and revisit some of your favorite episodes at midamerica.edu slash podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Our faculty have covered a wide range of topics, so feel free to explore our archive and continue learning with us. We'll be back with new episodes on the first Thursday of July, where we'll continue to explore fascinating subjects and dive headlong into the Reformed faith. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month.